0: I was thinking the other day about my journey as a pastor and just reviewing the things that used to uh, throw me off. And when I, when I first started, one of the things that intimidated me the most was the funeral. And it wasn't, it wasn't just that I didn't know what to say, although I didn't. And it wasn't that I just felt completely inadequate to the task, although I did. But I also didn't, like, know the process. I wasn't sure of all the protocols and, like, how to craft the funeral, the celebration of life, when to read Scripture, when to pray, where to stand— and uh, when to greet the family formally. There, there was just all these things that I'd never really thought about, but then all of a sudden I found that I was responsible for them. And this this may seem kind of weird, but one of the things I never knew was whether or not I was supposed to take my car to the graveside or if they were going to provide for me a car, if I rode with them. And so I, I got to a service one day and uh, found out that I was, I was provided a ride. Okay, so I had a way to go from the church where we had the funeral to the graveside and then back. And that day, I found myself riding in the car with the owner of the busiest funeral home in Lawton, Oklahoma, where we were planting a church at the time. And, and his name was Phil, and he was exactly what you expect him to be. Okay, he was, if he had been an actor, he would have been typecast as a mortician every single time. Okay, he he wore black all the time. He kind of had a sad and droopy countenance. And I'm I'm not making this up, he smelled like flower arrangements. So he he was all in. So after the interment, we, we got in the car, and this was one of the earliest, one of the in the beginning of my ministry, and I felt like we had a really good day. Like there were no major gaps on my part, and sometimes you just want to get out of the way and let things happen. And then I also knew that God was present in the laughter and in the tears, and there was that peace that passes all understanding as we honored a life that was well lived. And I was grateful for that, and I, I have to tell you relieved, and I felt a little chatty, okay? I just needed somebody to talk to, and it was just me and Phil on a long ride back to the church. And so I didn't know how Phil felt about the way things went, but he was there and I decided to talk to him. He wasn't a very talkative guy, but I thought, you know, everybody, most people are free to talk about themselves right? So I decided just to engage him in conversation so I could learn more about Phil. And so I asked him about his family, and I asked him how long he wanted to be a mortician, and if it was a family business. And I went through all the list of questions, and I I came down to—I exhausted them. And so I decided—I don't don't know if this is a great question or not, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I said— Phil House Business. Right? Like, is that do you really want to know? And without hesitation. Without hesitation, he said, Well, Pastor, we're down eight to nine percent this year. And then he told me about how the flu wasn't as bad that year as it had been the year before. And he gave me a couple of other contributing factors to why the mortality rates in Comanche County, Oklahoma, were down that year. And so I finally said, well, Phil, to be honest with you, I don't know if I'm supposed to be happy or sad about that. Right? And I'll never forget, he just slowly turned toward me, and he said, Pastor Chris, it's not good for us. He said, I'm a Christian, but I'm a businessman first, and that's not good business. Now, with that answer, he buried the conversation. I'll just, just a minute, you'll get it. And so we rode back in silence. But, but there were questions dancing in my mind. Like, was, was I supposed to feel bad for Phil or good for those for whom his services were temporarily unnecessary? Did, did he know they would eventually come around? Surely. But more importantly, and this was the one that was just ringing in my ears, If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how can you be something else first? Isn't isn't your faith in Jesus supposed to color the way you see everything else in the world? Is what is first your master? You remember a couple of weeks ago, I quoted Abraham Lincoln, who said, some single mind must be master, else there will be no agreement in anything. Now the converse of that is that when you have a single mind, then everything else naturally complies. Everything else falls right into line underneath the single master. Now as I read Nehemiah chapter 5, I thought about my conversation with Phil. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 today, and so you can get them and open or open your phones to Nehemiah chapter 5. Just a little bit of background to get us all called up. Our hero Nehemiah has just led the people to weather the storm of resistance from the outside. You remember the Three Stooges, Sambal, Tobiah, and Geshem. Had, they led a multi-pronged attack against the wall builders, and with God's help, the Jews had deftly nullified the threat, and the work continued. Okay, But now, in chapter 5, the group encounters a different, unexpected attack— from the inside, not from the outside. And in this case, the fuse was lit by a group of people who were not completely dedicated to building the wall. They were building the wall, but they weren't completely dedicated to building the wall, and they would essentially say what Phil said. We're believers, but we're businessmen first. We're believers, but we're businessmen first. Now let's turn our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1 today. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery? Some of our daughters have already been enslaved— but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, the scripture says there was an outcry. Okay, this, this wasn't—the the people weren't just murmuring about the trouble they were in and word filters up to Nehemiah. There was an outcry. And that word, outcry, is the same one that was used to describe the response of the Israelites when they were killed held captive in slavery in Egypt. The people cry out. There is an outcry when they are victims of injustice. And that's exactly what was going on. And so they took their concerns to the one person who could do something about what was going on, and that was Nehemiah. Now, what was the problem? It was an economic problem. And it was complicated by two factors. Okay, First, there was a famine in the land, and that made the grain scarce and obviously more expensive. There was inflation, obviously more expensive than it was when the project began. Second, many of them—now just think about this—many of them had walked away from the work that they did to provide for their families and signed on as wall builders, which was, by the way, an unpaid position— So they walked away from their jobs providing for their families and became volunteers on a project for the whole community. Now the upshot was that they were doing something... Brilliant for their future. They were serving their families, anticipating what God was going to do when the wall was built. The problem was they couldn't afford the grain they needed to survive in the present. So they were working for the future and dying in the present. Now those who were fortunate enough to own property had mortgaged it to feed their family. They had mortgaged their property to feed their families. Those who had enough money to buy food didn't have enough money to pay the king's taxes, except for the wealthiest among them. They were all forced to borrow money at exorbitant interest rates just to feed their families while they built the wall. Just to feed their families. Just to survive. Now, let's just pause a moment and remember where we are on the project. Okay, at this point, the wall has been built up to half its height. Okay, so all around the city, the wall is at half its height. It's a good thing. But that extracted a heavy toll on the builders. They were exhausted. They were haunted by the threat of attack. They were physically hungry, financially upside down, and many of them were literally losing their families. Did did I mention what happened if they couldn't pay the money back, if they couldn't pay the interest on the loans? Their children, by agreement, were being taken into slavery until their debts were repaid. That's the way it worked. They didn't get your car... You didn't have a house? They didn't get your house. They got your kids. It was a desperate situation compounded by the fact that their debts were to their fellow Jews. To wall builders. Fellow wall builders were acting as bankers and they were using the crisis to pad their wallets. Hence the cry of injustice. Now, Think about those people who were lending the money. They were Jews, therefore, they were believers. They worshiped the one true God. And they were working on God's project, building the wall, but they were obviously businessmen first. And they were going to hold the people accountable to their debts without mercy. They were going to get their money one way or another. So if that meant taking their kinsman's land, they would take it. And if it meant taking their children into slavery, they would take them. It was business. Now, if there's ever been anything unjust, that was it. And the people rightly cried out to Nehemiah for help. And look what Nehemiah does, beginning in verse 6. When I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then, after thinking about it, accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible— We have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. That was part of the project. Let's get the people back into the city. Now, you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. He was right. They were wrong. Now, Nehemiah, when he hears the outcry, gets the information, he takes some time to sort out what was going on. By the way, I don't don't know if you've noticed this as, as we've been through the story of Nehemiah, but at every turn where he meets with crisis, he does what a great leader will do. He stops. He doesn't charge in. He doesn't overreact. He stopped. What happened when Hanani, his brother, and his entourage came from Jerusalem to tell Nehemiah that the city was in great trouble? What did he do? He stopped. He allowed himself, his heart, to be broken. He spent time in prayer and fasting, seeking. God's plan. Then, after four months, the door opened for him to go to Jerusalem. He shows up and he immediately begins to tell them, hey, here's what we're going to do. No, that's not at all what happened. He got there, he made camp for himself, and for three nights, he did a tour of the city, taking everything in, getting all the facts and information, and then. He spoke to the people. And now he hears the outcry. And he doesn't just launch, he stops. He considers the facts. And then he moves ahead through prayer and in wisdom with purpose. Here's the problem. Charging fellow Jews' interest Was bad. That practice is known as usury in Scripture, and it was strictly forbidden by the law of Moses. So they were completely out of line, and because of their business-first mentality, they were literally missing the forest for the trees. The whole idea of rebuilding the wall was the liberation of the Jews and the prosperity of God's people. Okay, their well-being was a testimony, a testament to the God they worshipped. Their unity and peace was supposed to be a light in a dark world that would attract the Gentile non-believers around them to worship the one true God. But the opportunism of the nobles and the officials was effectively turning their light off. They were enslaving the very people they were working to liberate. They were God followers, but they were acting as businessmen first. And it was a problem. Look at verse 9. Nehemiah continues addressing them. So I continued, Guys, what you're doing is not right. Right? shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let's stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. In desperate times, they were in a desperate time, there was famine. There was attack from the outside. There's a cancer growing on the inside. In those times, everyone is supposed to be, they were supposed to be working together for the greater good, but the businessmen were taking possession of everything in Jerusalem at the expense of their fellow workers. Nehemiah led them to confession Repentance and restoration. Think about it. They confessed their wrongs, and then according to their oath, they sent their children back home. It's a good start. They returned all of their property and even the money they had taken from them. Now, how did they get there? What, what happened... That got them so spun around that they would have compromised, potentially compromised their mission so that the richest among them could get even richer. What happened? Well, about 475 years after the wall building project was complete, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, offered commentary on what had happened. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now before Jesus taught it they learned it's impossible you can't live for two masters in this case and in Jesus statement in 624 reinforces that the fact that money is generally the other master generally But it doesn't have to be. There's drive for success, status, career, dreams for your kids. All of that can take precedence over your faith in Christ. The bottom line is that if anything has displaced Christ from the driver's seat of your heart then you're compromising God's mission for your life. Why? Because no one can serve two masters. And what's interesting is, when you really think about it, these other masters, these things that we elevate to the place of primacy in our decision-making grid— These other masters, when they are properly subordinated to God, they're often the greatest asset that God has entrusted to us for His mission. Just think about this: the nobles and the the officials that were wrecking the project by their greed—they possessed exactly what was needed. if if their possessions had not mastered them or the thought of more possessions, if they had chosen generosity over greed, the wall building would have gone on without the unnecessary delay precipitated by this crisis. But they made their assets master rather than God and their choice compromised the mission. You go, well, how, really? Did it compromise the mission? Is that what happened? Because they ultimately they got the wall built and they, they were already halfway there. So is, is this really that bad? Look back at verse 9. So I continued. And remember, this is Nehemiah addressing the group. So I continued. What you're doing is not right. And here's why. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. Okay, now let's think about this. They were led by another master. And because they were following another master, they weren't walking in the healthy fear of God. And because they weren't walking in a healthy fear of God, they had opened the door of reproach for their Gentile enemies. Now, what exactly does all that mean? Okay, Gentile enemies, in this case, are those who did not have faith in God. Okay, they were opposed to God's work, they were opposed to God's The wall-building project. They were opposed to God's presence in Jerusalem. The presence of God and the prosperity of the Jews in Jerusalem was a direct threat to their way of life, and they had enjoyed running the show for a long, long time before the Jews showed back up in Jerusalem. But what Nehemiah insightfully alludes to here is that they know exactly, listen, those non-believers, this is so important, those non-believers know exactly what those believers are supposed to be doing. They know what the Jews should be doing and how they should be behaving. The enemies didn't reverence God or feel compelled to live by his word, but they knew that God's people should be. You understand that? So the non believers are on the outside looking in, saying, Those people who claim to believe in God, they don't even act like he's real. They're not walking in fear of the one they say is the one true God. Why should we listen to them? Their beliefs have no credibility because of the way they're living. By not practicing God's teaching in these business matters, by literally blowing the community up, they were opening themselves up to reproach they were compromising their credibility and their mission because their enemies said if they don't live for god why should we if they don't fear god why should we if those people who say they're following god don't actually follow god why should we Good question. It's the right question. And it is the perspective that the dark world outside the church has always rightfully held. Rightfully held. They're not wrong. Why should they believe if those who claim to believe don't live out their faith in fear and tremble? See, no, they knew, they knew that if they really loved God and feared God, they would be taking care of their own. The community wouldn't be imploding because of greed, because of business interests, if they all believed, if they really believed, they would never make money their God. That's exactly what was happening. Now let's just pull out of that scene for a moment and understand the bottom line here if you have a single master other than Christ, if you can say, I'm a Christian, but I'm... What's first for you? If you can say there's anything else, then what we're learning here is that you're compromising the mission for which you were created. Because they know. The people, and you remember when we started this study, we found out the wall wasn't the mission, it was the people. The people who are the mission know what we're supposed to believe. And they know how we're supposed to live. Those in the dark world today know exactly what we believe. They actually probably hold us to a higher standard than we hold ourselves. And when we falter, we elevate our dreams or elevate business or leisure ahead of worship, service, and sacrifice, then we are compromising our witness. We're destroying our credibility, and we're dimming our collective light for the cause of Christ. I heard a pastor a few years ago, and i probably told, some of you have probably heard this, but I heard a pastor tell a story about this young man who came to their church and for a, a month or so made his way through small groups, the connection groups, and he was asking, interviewing, essentially, the, the people in those groups by asking two questions— Here are the questions. Everybody got it. Do you pray and do you tithe? This is the question. Every every group got the same treatment. And so understandably, just like maybe we're uncomfortable right now, understandably all those people were uncomfortable. Who is this stranger asking these two very difficult questions, questions we don't really want to answer? And so because everybody was uncomfortable, the pastor pulled the young man aside and said, hey, like, what, what exactly is going on here? What are you getting at? And he said, well, pastor, to be honest, I'm, I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian, but I'm checking it out. I want to know if it's real. And he said, the best I can tell is that if it's real, then Christians would do those two things. They would pray and they would tithe. And he wanted to know if it was real for the people in that church. Were they Christians first? Or were they something else? Are you a follower first? Or are you something else? It is mission critical that when we deal with the question honestly, we must deal with this question honestly. Is there something that is more important to you than following and living for Christ? is there something more important? When Nehemiah got word of this threat, he was angry. He wasn't sure what God was doing, but he knew one thing. He knew God had sent him to regrace those people and rebuild that wall. And he knew that the victory that he was pursuing facilitating and enjoying the presence of God in Jerusalem. That victory was already won because that was God's vision for his people. It was his covenant promise. And Nehemiah decided he was was going to always fight the fight and trust that the battle had already been, been won. And so when the time came, Nehemiah challenged the people to repent, to make things right, so they could join God in the victory he prepared for them. And you know what they learned? It's never too late to get it right. And it's always essential. I, I imagine that when Nehemiah learned... What the problem was, what the outcry was about, I I did it blew his mind. He could not understand. And nor could anyone else when the light shined on it. But I know one thing, Nehemiah had faith. That things were going to go as they should, that God was going to see, that they overcame this hurdle and finished the task. He knew how the story would end. He just had to go through the darkness to lead them to the light. Now, listen, here's the truth. We know how the story ends, too. We know that God's vision for us is to overcome, to live in the victory He has already won. He was God for those wall builders. He was their savior. He was their defense. He is for us. If you're a believer, then you know the victory is won. You know how it is. If you're a believer first in that big